This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Full Stack Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam, as always, and today I'm here with Chad Pytel, the CEO of ThoughtBot. How's it going, Chad? It's going very well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, I mean, we got a chance to talk uh, last year about some stuff, but I thought it'd be good to uh, catch up and maybe ask you some more questions and pick your brain about a few other things. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, do you maybe want to just give a brief introduction and uh, explain kind of what ThoughtBot is all about and what you guys are doing there? Yeah. ThoughtBot is a product design and development company for web and mobile products. And we work with companies of all sizes to take idea, bring it through concept phase, build it, launch it to the world, and then grow the business. And uh, we also work with much more established companies to basically do the same thing and then to leverage our expertise in growing, scaling, and fixing problems as well. And so we have uh, been in business 12 years, um, just celebrated our 12th anniversary the beginning of this month. And in the last couple of years, we've decided to grow. So we've opened local offices in 10 cities, uh, nine in the U.S. and one in Stockholm, Sweden, and we'll be opening a London office in next month. Awesome. Related to kind of that, I had a question for you about kind of how you guys have been growing and stuff like that, because I know, um, you know, you guys were a lot smaller for a long time, and then you kind of made the decision at one point that uh, it made sense to kind of grow the business. Are there any particular like thresholds in company size or anything that you thought were particularly difficult or particularly important? And uh, anything that you guys did differently to kind of maintain that thought culture and keep things the way you wanted to keep them as you were growing the business? Yeah, the 20 number um, is a really critical number in terms of team dynamics. Um, and we... Uh, about five years ago, started inching up on that number and um, started to feel some constraint around knowing everybody, feeling related to everybody, like, you know, having those relationships with people that we all value. Um, and it just became hard organizationally as well. Um, and so we actually, you know, the only office that's, that, that's bigger than 20 is Boston. And the number of people who work on consulting in Boston is right around 20. Uh, everyone else over that 20 mark is uh, me and the rest of the sort of leadership team of ThoughtBot that um, contributes to all the offices. So we really haven't crossed that 20 number. And that's um, part of our strategy for growing was to open other local teams. So the majority of the time, the people that you're interacting with on a day-to-day basis are right in that sweet spot of, you know, four, six, eight, 12, up to 20 people, um, to maintain that feeling, um, and just happiness factor of, of having personal relationships with the people that you work with business wise, there were sort of two, um, milestones like right around the 12 person mark is when the dynamics of having enough work 
to support a team really change. It's sort of for us that eight to 12 number really, I remember it. It goes from being like, you know, you can have one or two projects and most of the team is going to be okay and, and working on them to you know, we need to have three or four or five projects going consistently with more in the pipeline in order to support this team size. Um, and that carries forward up until a 20 number. Uh, the difference between 12 and 20 people, I like into it sort of a treadmill, and this is a not, not anything I came up with, but it's just the, the concept of that consulting treadmill Um I didn't find it any more difficult to have 20 people than to support 20 people than to support 16 or 12. Like you sort of cross that threshold and um, business wise, it's a similar dynamic in terms of having enough work for people. And then given the way that we grew the other big plateau or, or milestone was around 75 people. And I think this number would be very different if we were all in the same office, but because we have small offices that are similar to ThoughtBot has always been, it was once hitting that that 75 person mark, we really, from a business perspective, from a HR perspective, from just like every dimension operationally, it crosses a threshold where you know you can no longer keep it in your head and what may have worked for you in the past in terms of making a reasonable decision um, in terms, especially when it comes to expenses or how you're going to approach something or whatever. And I, most common example is like we do quarterly increases, uh, quarterly performance reviews and, and quarterly raises. And when you give someone like a percent increase, which was, you know, pretty normal on a quarterly basis so we're doing it four times a year based on really great performance it's all well and good say it's like a thousand dollars um when you have 75 people or when you have 100 which is what we're at now you make that what is a reasonable choice and that's in a single quarter increases your expenses by one hundred thousand dollars um and so the scale of that you, you know you can no longer sort of just go off of like, well, this seems like a good thing to do because what seems like a good thing to do can snowball or have an impact that is beyond the scale that you're used to. And we're actually still getting through that sort of period of getting comfortable with the scale that we're at now and how the decisions we make um, are impacted by that scale. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, you know, like growing a consultancy is obviously a lot different than uh, growing a product in the sense that uh, just because you had, you know, revenue last month doesn't mean you're getting that same revenue plus whatever new customers this month. It's always, you know, finishing projects and bringing on new projects. Um, I know uh, you guys are really well known in the developer community, at least for just having a reputation for being an authority on, on, you know, programming through your open source work and blogging and stuff like that. Uh, do you do much outside of that to help attract new clientele, like as far as your marketing strategy and stuff goes? This is an area where we can grow a lot more. I think, you know, a significant percentage, 80 to 90 percent of all the work we do is people who originally came to us. Um, now, 
We do indirect marketing, which is, I would say, the open source, speaking at conferences, hosting and sponsoring events like Vim and Ruby meetups and that kind of thing. That's all indirect marketing. We do a lot of that, and that's where the majority of our work comes from. We do also do a lot of direct marketing and, and more direct marketing. And, by, and the things that we are focused on in terms of that are on the things like open source and playbook, that we have the playbook is, you know, it's a book that describes how we work as a company, how we develop products, how, how we work as a team on that, actually having specific email sign up where, you know, you can sign up and get an ebook version of that instead of just the web version. And as a result of signing up for that, you're going to get, you know, a, the right now it's our blog emailed to you on a weekly basis um, but building those email lists that we can then build upon and, and target and get customers directly from not because those that particularly performs better than indirect marketing, but that it can be tracked better. So knowing what is performing, what isn't allows you to focus your time. And then the other big area where we have a lot of improvement to do as a company is what I would call lead generation. So proactive sales, because at ThoughtBot, we don't have people who are not designers and developers doing sales. We don't have sort of that traditional salesperson, rainmaker kind of person. Um, and so we're getting, and we don't expect to add that person ever. But what we are doing is getting more comfortable with the fact that there's got to be a group of people at ThoughtBot even if they are developers or designers who are actively proactively trying to generate leads of potential customers. And that's a big area of growth for us now. So what would you say, like, uh, you know, as a company who is made up entirely of developers and designers and hasn't really done, you know, you don't have a salesperson or anything, what would you attribute to the leads and stuff that you do get in through the door? If it's, uh, you know, aside from the open source stuff, do you find that it's mostly people with technical skills that are coming to you that know about you and respect you because of your like authority in the programming world? Or is there a way that people find out about you guys that aren't technical people and just have ideas for, for new products? So uh, certainly a significant portion of people are the technical people, but that's not our primary customer. And so our primary customer are people who want a design and technical team to to bring on to help them realize their vision their idea and bring their product to market so we that can be that comes from again it's indirect so that could be that founder who has an idea asks the one designer or one developer that he or she does know hey who's good who 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 can do you know who should i talk to and because that person's familiar with us and uses our stuff and everything, they they say, you should talk to ThoughtBot. Or they just find the playbook directly. Uh, they, you know, they're doing Google search or, you know, whatever, and they find the playbook, they read it, they say, these people really get it. Um, I want to talk to them. That's where are the people who are our ideal customer find us. It's a mix. And then obviously word of mouth from previous customers is huge. Uh, you know, a lot of our customers are founders and they go on to meet other founders and, you know, they, they say, who did you work with? Oh, I worked with ThoughtBot. They did a great job. 
you know, that kind of thing that leads to more and more work. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned the playbook being really helpful in those cases, because obviously I think that's a really influential thing out there uh, for people who are also in the consulting industry or even freelancing or whatever. Like there's a lot of uh, interesting information in there about how you guys run your business that uh, I feel like a lot, a lot of it is helps you remove risk from some of the more traditional uh, project engagements where you'd have like, you know, fixed bid pricing and stuff like that, that you guys are not really on board with. So it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, potential clients read that where I feel like a lot of the, the information in there is, uh, you know, to help you be successful as a consultancy or, or as a development team. And a lot of the things in there are maybe not things that a client would be comfortable with right off the bat. Like I know in places I've worked in the past, it's, it's been a challenge to get people on board with just paying, you know, iteration based pricing, like week to week. Uh, everyone wants to know what something's going to cost up front and stuff like that. So it's interesting to hear you say that the, the playbook, you know, does a good job convincing those sorts of people to work with you guys too. Well, I think it goes both ways. It not only does a good job convincing people, but if someone reads that and disagrees with it, <laughs> they're not going to contact us. And that's what we want. Um, if, if we have to work extra hard to convince someone to work in the way that we're going to work, it's probably not worth our time to spend all that energy trying to convince them because the chance that you've actually convinced them and that the project will go well because they're truly convinced is also pretty small. So we would rather put that out there and have people self-screen uh, than to spend all that energy selling. Now, there's a difference between selling and educating. And I would say that the, you know a lot of customers contact us and they need some education around how we're going to work and why it's good and all that stuff. And and the playbook certainly does help with that. Do you have any advice for maybe um, other consultancies or other people working in this industry that maybe have less opportunity as far as being able to pick and choose the projects that they're working on? Like you're talking about like people kind of self-selecting by maybe like opting out. Oh, I only want to work with people who are going to answer my RFP and do this for a fixed bid or whatever. Um, and you guys still obviously get uh, plenty of work from the people who are on board with the way that you guys want to work. Do you have any advice for people who maybe don't get as many of those opportunities up front and have to, you know, figure out ways to work with clients that maybe aren't on board right away with kind of the, the strategy that you guys take? Yeah. The, the way we approach it and, and, and really always have and, and continue to do so is that we have sort of these guiding principles, these touchstones. And I think it's important and about how we work and, what we're going to do and, and how we approach product development and and client relationships. And it's important to know which ones are inflexible and which ones are sort of just like guideposts or the way I put it is flags, you know. And it's actually totally cool to have a lot of things that you hope to do or want to do but that you're going to be flexible on. And the way, the way I approach it is, you know, your principles are there for guiding you. And if you don't have any principles, then you don't know when you've compromised them. But by having the, the, your principles clearly laid out, then you can know we're going against our principle here. I need to justify why that is the case. And I have the touch points and say, I am 
doing this because of these other reasons. But then you also realize, okay, I've compromised on three principles here. This is where we need to pull the plug on on this potential thing. This is too much of a compromise on our ideals to make it work. But I, I really like there's so much compromise even in when we were first getting started, like we're very opinionated. We lay out our principles very clearly, but then we try to work within them and try to be successful. And and that doesn't mean you compromise on everything and certain things like what's important to you, you know, like the test driven development, super important to us. And so we don't compromise on that. So, you know, we have the things we won't compromise. We have the things that are red flags. And when we cross too many of them, you know, it becomes an issue for us. But from a business perspective, especially, you know, when you're getting started, there are times where you're going to need to compromise. And I think that that's okay as long as you're aware that you're doing it and being very conscious about it. The other thing is as you get more comfortable, you can proactively figure out ways to work successfully as you would within the constraints that the customer may be putting on you. So for example, you get an opportunity to do a very large project, but they, as with a significant budget, but they are approaching it as a fixed bid. The way I would approach that, I would say, let's flip this around. What they're really saying is our budget is this. And if we can decouple the specific feature set that they're requesting from the budget that they have, then we can probably work successfully within that because we're very good at building a product that people want, that people are happy with within a specific set of time and budget. It's only the feature set that that needs to flex in that scenario. So if we can convince them that we're going to do a product design sprint, we're going to talk about jobs to be done and interview users, and we may end up with the feature set that they want, but we're going to use a process to identify what's actually going to be worked on and iterated upon. And I, I, I am very confident that a customer that's willing to do that, that working with my team we're going to end up with something that everybody's happy with, even if it wasn't what was in the RFP. And that's, you can, you can, the RFP is only a mechanism for them to satisfy, like to dot the I's and cross the T's and satisfy whatever stakeholders they have. And if you go into it and you can, you're confident that you can actually satisfy the stakeholders without hitting the feature set outlined in that RFP, then that's a, that's, a strategy that I'm willing to take now because I, I've seen it over and over and over again in our teams and our projects and with our clients that it, it's the end result and the process that, that matters and delivering successfully within those constraints is what matters. And so, you know, you have a big budget project, you can work on it iteratively. Everyone's going to be happy with where you end up, even though you didn't really do what was in that initial RFP. Sure. Uh, what approach do you guys take to like kind of upfront ballpark estimating in the sense that, you know, there's obviously some threshold where below that you probably can't build something of value for someone, whether or not, you know, exactly what you're going to end up with at the end of the day. Um, like if someone Mm -hmm. says, you know, I have two weeks of budget, that's it's maybe it's hard to say that we can even solve your problem for, for that much. Right. Do you guys have any strategy for, 
you know, approaching those sort of situations? Like, is there just a, a number of weeks where it's like, given this number of weeks, I'm sure we can solve enough of your problem that you'll be happy. And how do you approach it on like a case by case basis? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. We do approach it on a case by case basis because, you know, it depends on the goals or the stage of the company stage of the product. Um, two weeks is enough time for us to spend helping their team, you know, an unestablished product that has some code problems. Two weeks is enough time working alongside that team to clean some stuff up, set the stage with their developers, help them improve a little bit and, figure out where they're going to go forward as a team and provide some recommendations. Maybe that's what they need. Um, two weeks is enough time for an early stage founder to do a product design sprint where you, we understand and brainstorm and come together on what the product might be valid, identify the assumptions that are being made in the business, talk to users who our potential customers validate or invalidate the assumptions that the business is making, put together a prototype that it, we test with those users to verify that the product that might be built meets those, you know, that they would buy it. And that, that is a five day process. We can do that in five days. And out of that five day process, the, the founder comes away with a validated first version of their product with wireframes and a, and a prototype that they can then go and put in front of investors or even do more user interviews and those kinds of things. So for that stage of the company, five days is all we need. Designer, developer, in a room with the founder for five days. We can do it so we can accomplish what they need in, in less. Where we run into trouble is someone has two weeks of budget, two weeks of time, and they want the world. Like we can't deliver the world, but we can deliver a lot. <laughs> it just needs to be in the right context. Is it pretty common for you guys to have projects that are kind of planned up front to just be like a design sprint like that, that someone will come to you and maybe they come to you asking for more, but you pitch them on like, let's do, you know, a week of this at the end of the week, you'll come, you'll have a prototype. Uh, you can go and do whatever. And if you still decide that you want to build it, come back to us and talk to us about taking on, you know, the project. Let's, now that we've kind of figured out all the information about what it is that we think is the right thing to build and stuff like that. Yeah, it's fairly common for both of those, for someone to come to us knowing that they want a product design sprint and may then continue or someone to come to us and for us to, in talking to them, say, and both agree that it, the best thing to do is start with a product design sprint and then go from there. Um, it's, we want to do even more of that. Um, you know, it's, the product design sprint is now sort of officially part of our process. Almost every product, almost every project we start starts with one. And it's a structured process, but it's, it's more like a kickoff, a knowledge transfer and then very concrete validation and building of the prototype and identifying the feature set. So for many projects, another deliverable out of the product design sprint is not only the prototype, but a Trello board with all of the features broken up into cards, broken up into potential iterations that are going to be then worked. That's a deliverable on many of the product design sprints we do as well. 
For sure. Uh, you mentioned uh, the jobs to be done stuff uh, briefly earlier. Uh, that's something I've been pretty interested in. And I talked to like Ryan Singer about that uh, last year as well. I'd be interested to know um, what, what you find important in that sort of thinking and how you apply that to brand new products. Because I feel like a lot of the information out there and a lot of the things, the ways people talk about it, a lot of it is about uh, getting information about people that are already already using a product. So it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on applying that to brand new product development, if that's something that you've thought a lot about. It is. Um, I'll try to approach it from like a, a very concrete, practical perspective, because I think that that might be part of or, you know, what's valuable here. So from a new product standpoint, the the way that the practical component of jobs to be done is focus. So if you can identify the core job that your product is meant to satisfy, then that that becomes a real concrete point of focus for your product and you can say you can identify what the minimum viable product is and only build the features you need when you have identified what the core job to be done is and that core job to be done isn't necessarily something that you would this is why jobs to be done is special it's not the feature that you have it's what or what you're delivering or even the specific solution that you're delivering. It's what the customer wants to get from it. What what are you satisfying? And that for like for books, that might be entertainment. So the, the job to be done of books, movies, video games is all potentially the same job to be done. It's entertainment. It's fulfilling time that kind of thing. That, that's what a job to be done is. And so if you can identify that in your product, uh, that it provides a lot of focus and allows you to, to make definitive decision about what's in and out of the first version of your project. The other very practical way that we've impacted jobs to be done has impacted our work is with the jobs format story. So instead of formatting stories or features that are going to be written in the traditional user story format. So like as an admin, I want to do this so that I can do this. We reformat that and from a, a job to be done perspective. It eliminates the user from it and approaches it more from a context. So when I'm doing this, I want to do this so that I can you know, ha- have this. And that framing has actually been really helpful to just slightly tweak the language of the not only the conversation of understanding around what a feature is, but also removes a little bit of the natural bias from user personas kind of thinking that I find is in stories or eliminate some of the bias from like a project stakeholder who's creating stories. If you, all, if you ever see like a story that's like, as the product manager, I want this feature <laughs> so that my customers will be happy. Kind of like that is... Uh, that's not a that's not a story but if you can rephrase that feature in a job story format it's basically impossible for them to write it that way uh, you know it's it's when i'm doing this you know w- in the context of my life or this product or whatever then i want to comp- here's what i want to accomplish and that's much more powerful so those are the two practical ways that job stories have impacted the results of our product development process and and the concrete sort of 
logistical organization of product development. Yeah, I think I think you're right that the the context that you get from that is super super valuable, right? Like I think the idea of asking when someone's doing something like what happened that's motivated you to now want to try and do whatever it is that you're going to do with this feature just gives you a lot of insight into what the best way to actually solve that problem is that you don't get with that sort of a static picture of a story that you would get with a more traditional user story format. Yeah, I mean, we've always said that people are really terrible at prescribing solutions to problems. Like if they have a problem, if the user has a problem, if your product manager has a problem, if your founder has a problem, so much of what we talk about is the solution to that problem right away. And we're generally pretty bad, particularly customers are pretty bad at knowing what the actual solution to their problem is. They're going to have lots of suggestions but what you really want to get at is the root of the problem that they have or what they're trying to accomplish because the solution to that problem may be some something completely different. That's our job as designers is to identify the thing that someone didn't think of. If someone if 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 the customer knows the solution to the problem, they probably don't need your product. To have a truly remarkable product, it's going to be the solution that they didn't even think of. So that's sort of our, our goal is to identify those things. And sometimes that means not building something, not building software. It's a great day when we figure out we don't, we don't need to build a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's something, uh, one of the examples that I always think of when I think of like the user story versus job story thing is like, you know, if you have a story like as an admin, I want to be able to sort my contacts so that I can see them in alphabetical order. Like, that fits the traditional user story format. But as soon as you can try to put that into a job story format, it becomes really clear mm-hmm. that you haven't identified what the problem there is at all. You know what I mean? Right, right. So one of the things I was going to ask you, kind of related to this, which is, you know, uh, as, as developers, I find as a developer myself, I always want to understand that context, right? Even if, even if it's not going to directly impact the code that I end up writing, which I mean, it, it always does, but maybe, you know, there's probably situations where someone can make an argument to you that, you know, knowing when I'm going to do this, isn't going to change, you know, what syntax you're going to write into, into the editor is, but, uh, you know, as a company who does things the way that you guys do, where, you know, it's just developers and designers on a project, as, as far as I understand, it's always the developers and the designers working directly with the client, right? Like you don't have really right. an extra layer of project management in there or anything kind of dictating. We have an, the- just, just, we, we have an advisor on a project, but that advisor is an impartial person who runs the retrospective so that the people who, the designers and developers who are on the team can uh, focus on being present and participate in the retrospective and planning meeting. Sure, instead of trying to help facilitate. Right. And we call it advisor for a reason, too, is because like both the client and the uh, ThoughtBot team sometimes need an impartial person to tell them, like, I think you're headed in the wrong direction. You're two heads down on this. Or what do you think about this? And have someone who knows enough about what you're trying to accomplish to give you an opinion on it, but isn't so heads down that they can't see the forest for the trees. And so the way that we accomplish that is, is anyone at ThoughtBot can be advisor for another project. And a lot of people have, you know, the product that they're on um, and they're working on, but they'll spend an hour or two a week um, also being advisor on another project. Cool. Um, as 
you know, doing things the way that you guys do, where it's always the developers and the designers working directly with the clients. Have you ever run into challenges in uh, separating sort of, you know, project or product related conversations from, you know, business related conversations when it comes to like, you know, I don't think the developers on your team, for example, are going to be responsible for making sure the clients pay their invoice or making sure that, uh, you know, they know about changes that are going to need to happen in the budget or things like that. Uh, have you ever run into challenges kind of keeping that stuff separate when teams are so self-directed and kind of working with clients in their own silos? Yeah. Uh, yes. The answer is yes. So now the same, the same people who are do, I mentioned earlier in the conversation that we, we have some people now who are, Developers or designers, but they're spending the majority of their time talking to potential customers and doing sales work. And so those people do play the role of account executive where if there's a question about invoice or making sure that it's invoiced, those kinds of things. That's part of their role. And we have three people at ThoughtBot who do that now. And the budget questions, they participate in that process, but this is actually something that we've changed. When, when we first started out, we really maintained a very hard wall between the, the team doing the work and all of the finances of the client relationship. And we did that because I really fundamentally believed that as Thoughtbot, what, what was going to make us most successful was like, the developers and designers should focus on building the best product unrelated to whether that customer was a little behind on their invoice or, you know, what the budget was or those kinds of things. And that worked for a really long time. But over time, we wanted, and I would say that the kinds of people who work at ThoughtBot want to know more of the business aspects of the relationship in order to make smart decisions around not only the best product to build, but within the constraints of the relationship and what we have. So it's a little bit different now. And I think that we try to walk a fine line between the team getting bogged down in knowing that there's only enough budget for four more iterations or that they're going to have to go through another funding round or everything and using that to make really great decisions on behalf of our clients. And we try to walk that line. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I've kind of done it both ways in the past at places I've worked. And I've always found as long as you can uh, keep those conversations about finances as like positive conversations that are helping, you know, guide product decisions and it works out a lot better when the development team can build a feature in, you know, a simpler or, you know, kind of maybe less polished way, understanding the context of why. I mean, it's helpful for everyone involved versus feeling like you're being handcuffed or something and not getting to do things right. the way you want to do them without really having the full right. story behind why. Right. Uh, one, a couple other things I was going to ask you about. Um, you know, as a consultancy where you have developers and designers, you know, work with the client, like we've been talking about, and they take a lot of responsibility for, you know, what's going on with the product. Do you find that um, your kind of criteria for finding people that are going to be the right fit for ThoughtBot is different than what it would be like for a product company? For a product company, um, in terms of skill level, 
from a designer development perspective, no. I think that a lot of product companies are jealous of the <laughs> of the the level of talent that we're able to attract. But from a, you know, we really need this person to be a great communicator, to be the kind of person who would speak at conferences to be, you know, to be great at client management and juggling that and, and, and all that stuff. Like those are, those are things that a product company doesn't necessarily look for. Like some product companies would be content to have sort of that stereotypical developer who just delivers code and is, you know, will do what you tell them to do. Um, No questions asked because all they care about is architecting a solution and they're going to do it quickly and quietly, basically. And that person has no place at ThoughtBot. You know, the kinds of developers who work at ThoughtBot and Thrive are the people who are going to push back uh, if they think something shouldn't be done or that it can be done a simpler way. You know, they're going to speak up. They're going to fight to do what they think is right. And some of those people, you know, that is not what product companies want in a lot of cases. Lately, you guys have been getting more on board the kind of product train. I know in the past that you guys had products in the past that you sold and closed down and stuff like that. But uh, And I remember you said in an interview, I think, that I listened to, that was probably from a couple years ago, that you'd kind of come to the realization that, you know, it was kind of really hard to be great at being a consultancy and great at being, you know, a product company. You want to kind of have a focus, but lately you've been getting more into doing some of these uh, products like form keep and hound and stuff. Uh, do you have any new insights that have maybe made that easier than it was in the past or let you be more successful at kind of doing both? So it's actually not that different now than it was before, except that we're, so it's a small fraction of what we do, but we're bigger now. And so whereas before, you know, in a year, we may have done one product that saw the light of day. Now we're 10 times bigger. And so, you know, there's more of, of that that's going through our process of deciding whether this is something we want to invest in, can invest in. It makes sense within the context of ThoughtBot. Yeah, there's just more of that. And so the volume is higher, but percentage-wise, I would say it's probably not any higher. Uh, what has helped, though, is that what I alluded to, the, the, that sort of decision-making process. You know, there was a period of time where we were seriously looking at doing a variety of different things for different customer sets, like consumer apps, basically, consumer products. And, you know, that requires building up an audience, marketing at a level that we're just not prepared to do because that's not our business. When we focus on products that are meant for designers and developers, we already have an audience of designers and developers. And so uh, we need to do a lot less work to on the marketing side, on the business side, to get a product out the door in a successful way. And so we have focused primarily on those kinds of products and we this year we did a game though uh, for android and ios and we also did a weather app and in each of those there was sort of they went through the process of decision making and team being excited about them and it making sense in some aspect of our business 
that it made sense to move forward with. So, you know, everything is easy to justify this way, but like the game, for example, there's a lot of interest in, so we're growing our mobile practice. iOS, Android development is an area that we're actively trying to grow. And so the more portfolio pieces that we can show, the more practice we have shipping mobile apps, particularly ones for both platforms, that's really helpful to our overall business. Um, there's also a lot of interest from the team in terms of doing games. And so this was a way to, to, to make that happen and keep people happy and interested and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, the weather app is primarily approach from, you know, we're trying to build a mobile presence. We need more portfolio stuff. We have some downtime on the team. Um, that's why we ju also just open sourced um, that app because we want to provide a um, example of the code that we write and, you know, the, our approach to iOS development. And so creating a small app that's a portfolio piece and also something for open source um, is right along the lines of our normal strategy, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a culture of open source in the same way for iOS development as there is for Rails, for example. There are libraries and, and those kinds of things, but not quite at the level as with Rails. And so part of the theory here is that like, what do people care about in the iOS world? They care about finished apps, shipping apps that are, interesting and, and all that stuff so we might be able to in the same way that releasing open source library that people use helps build reputation i think that open sourcing an actual application should build reputation in a similar way cool yeah that makes a lot of sense to me for sure are you guys um for the uh, internal stuff are you doing that as mostly investment time friday projects or are you treating them more like client projects and dedicating a team to them for you know x weeks at a time most everything starts as investment time so we, for for people who don't know we only work four days a week on client work the fifth day we save for improving ourselves so learning new things uh improving the company so making products or just making the company better and, and investing in the community so open source teaching mentoring running events that kind of thing so most products or projects that we're doing get started during investment time. And then once they get some legs behind them, during downtime between client projects, they form a team around them who works on them full time. And usually it's not so like cut and dry as we're taking people off of client work to put a team of people on this project. But what it is, is like, we have some time that isn't booked yet on the schedule. We've got this project that has some legs. Do we want to just not book those people on, on this and have, the, have them continue working on, on that instead? And so it's a pretty organic process where we're sort of embracing the downtime between client projects with those other products. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, one last question before we uh, start wrapping it up. You know, you guys, like you were saying, are really opinionated about the way you like to do things and you've publicized this stuff in like the playbook. Are there any specific changes or decisions that you guys made, you know, as you were growing the business and figuring out the way you guys wanted to operate that had a really 
significant impact on the success that you guys have had that other people can learn from? Well, I believe that not ha- committing to not having accountants, uh, salespeople, people who aren't designers and developers as a significant, you know, they have a seat at the table kind of role at ThoughtBot is important to the kind of company we are. And, and the reason why is as a developer, I come to work every day to enjoy the people I work with, to enjoy my job as a developer, to build the best products possible. And designers the same, all everyone else who's a developer the same. And so we're all coming to work every day motivated by the same things. Whereas if I was a CEO salesperson or, or there was a seat at the table of like a financial person, they would be motivated by something completely different than that. And so we wouldn't be able to make decisions in the same way about what the company is and does. And it's not just from a leadership perspective. Like, so yes, we're motivated by the same thing. So I can make decisions and you know, the majority of people at ThoughtBot will get it. They'll agree with it. They'll love it. More importantly, anyone else can make decisions as well. Like, so we can have a decentralized, you know, model where people uh, can use their best judgment. And because we're all motivated by the same things, we generally are all happy with each other's decisions and motivated uh, to move in the right, same direction and feel good about the decisions we're making. And as a CEO, like I'm not spending my time doing like CEO type things of, you know, making partnerships and doing these things that are big distractions uh, on what the core of our company is, which is designers and developers building great products. So that has had a fundamental shaping of who we are and, and what we are as a company. And, and you know, last year we recommitted to that. Uh, we were at 75 people and, and the, the tradition across 10 offices and, and the traditional path would have been, so we don't have any accountants, bookkeepers, Everything is outsourced to firms who are really great at those things. We don't have a CFO. We have a part-time outsourced CFO. So we don't have any of those roles. And at the size we're at, a traditional path would have been to start adding that, start adding an HR person, start adding bookkeepers, accountants. And we really had to, we, we decided that we would rather fail by trying a different path, by leveraging our skills as designers and developers to build and operationalize ThoughtBot as a product rather than potentially bring those people on and have different motivations at the company and potentially change the company. And so far, uh, we've been successful in maintaining that. Um, But that's a very important thing that influences the company every day and has influenced our success and I believe made us more successful in the long run. Awesome. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or plug before we get going? Oh, well, you mentioned, we mentioned in passing most of our, most of our things. Definitely, you know, check out FormKeep if you haven't already. Um, it's FormKeep.com and it's form endpoints for designers and developers. So if you're used to WooFoo or Google Forms where you're using a form builder and then you can't customize the, the actual form 
you know, we build a lot of static websites and we need to put a form on it and we're, we're forced using someone else's styles with a big JavaScript form. Uh, what FormKeep is, is it's just an endpoint. You can, you can take any HTML form and point it at the endpoint and anything you submit to it will go off and be integrated with other services, email autoresponder, that kind of thing. And um, we use it for ourselves and we built it into a product that other people can use. And, and we now have hundreds of people using it. And um, so I want to try to bring that to more and more designers and developers because it's a big time saver. Awesome. Yeah. We've actually used FormKeep a, a bit at work on a few things as well. And I can definitely agree that it, it saves a lot of time and a lot of headache. And the interface is really nice and, you know, has a lot of other niceties built into it as well. And especially combined with like, you know, free static site hosting on github and stuff now it's mm-hmm. a it's a really useful tool to save you building like a whole server side thing just to handle a stupid form submission and let you just kind of focus on the thing that's actually important yeah exactly and style the form the way yeah, that you want too. totally yeah. totally awesome well uh, it's been really awesome having you on man thank you so much for giving me your time thank you thanks for having me great so uh if you want to check out the show notes and stuff for this episode, they'll be located at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 21. If you have any feedback or comments, uh, there's comments on the site or hit me up on Twitter or shoot me an email. Uh, rate and review the show on iTunes. That's always helpful. And uh, thanks again to Hired, as always, for uh, sponsoring the podcast. Thanks, guys. See you next time.